So we turn to that psalm, it's Psalm 133, as we come today to the conclusion of our short series on uh, the psalms, we began, for those of you visiting at Psalm 150, and have uh, begun working our way back, and so uh, we'll close that series this morning. Tonight, uh, we'll look at uh, another individual whose name begins with the letter L in Scripture, a woman by the name of Lois. Pray that uh, you'd return to hear God's Word. This morning, though, Psalm 133. This also is a song of ascents. It is also a song of David. Behold. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's again bow in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy precious Word that Thou has given unto us, Lord. And we pray as we open this portion of Your Word that it will enter our hearts, that we may apply this to our lives, Lord. We pray this also that Thou wilt be with Pastor Bob and give him the words to say and expound your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Two points regarding this psalm. First of all, it is again a psalm of ascent. Secondly, it is a psalm about unity. There is no question about that amongst commentators, or I would think just the ordinary reading of the passage helps us to understand that, that the psalm is a psalm of unity, and the title tells us once again that it is a psalm of ascent. So let's uh, deal with a couple of things regarding that, first of all, so that we kind of set it in the context out of which this psalm is coming to us as well as it came to the people of God then also. It is written by David. Now that, that bears speaking about Because as I have been saying, as we've looked at these songs or psalms of ascent, these were sung by the various people, the various pilgrims, I guess we would refer to them, who are coming from around Israel or in later times beyond the borders of Israel. They're coming to Jerusalem. They're coming to the temple to worship. Now the reason it's... Interesting to note that this is a psalm of David. Is that something David never experienced? Because the temple is not built until after David is dead. The temple is not built until the reign of Solomon. So he's writing a psalm about something that is going to occur later that he himself was never going to actually experience. 
in the sense of that it's the song of ascent that is used by temple worshipers. But that does not mean that this was not the desire of David. See, what we're being told here is this is the desire of the one who has a heart after God. The desire of David is that God's people would dwell together in unity. That God's people would would be living a life of brotherhood. Of gathering together. Of dwelling together. In a bond of unity, of love for God. David's desire to that end was so strong that 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 which marks the reign of David is a unifying of the nation. Prior to the reign of David, if we went back 40 years before David begins to reign, we have a nation in uproar. We have a nation in chaos. We have a nation that you read about at, at the end of the book of Judges that is filled with disunity. Their attempt at unity is Saul. The problem is, Saul, for his meager attempts, is very unsuccessful in unifying the people. See, God chose Saul. And the reason God wanted Saul to be king is so that the people would realize that true unity is never going to be found in a king. It's never going to be found in a person. True unity is only going to be found in him. That's why God says to Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. So I'll give them a king, I'll give them a king after their own heart, I'll give them a king that they desire, but a king who is going to be, because he is human, a failure. And so how does the reign of Saul end? It ends with him falling on his own sword because of a defeat of the nation. Now God says, I'm going to give you a king after my own heart. Not after your heart, after your own heart. And he raises up David. And David's reign is about unifying the nation. It is about drawing that nation together. Politically? Yes. He makes Jerusalem his capital. It becomes the centralized place. Why is that important? Because Jerusalem up until the time of David was unconquerable. But once it's conquered, David gives the praise and glory to God for the conquering of it. And he says, this is now our capital. It draws the people together. He unifies the nation politically. In fact, at his coronation in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we read that everybody came. But he also did it religiously because you remember the one thing that David does is he takes the ark and he moves that ark to Jerusalem. An ark that had just been sitting in a guy's house, a a religion that had been sitting dormant 
David revitalizes and says, listen, not only do we need to be unified politically, we need to be unified religiously. And we'll never be unified politically until we are unified religiously. So he brings that ark up, and he brings that ark up to Jerusalem with songs of praise. So if you go back to the fact this is a song of ascent, David did experience it, not as going to the temple, but David experienced it as bringing that ark up to Zion, up to Jerusalem, for the unifying of God's people. But David had his struggles with unity as well, doesn't he? The Benjaminites are always a thorn in his political side. His own sin, certainly not an act of unity, but of disunity, against one of his own bodyguards, Uriah, a sin that results in basically disunity for the rest of his life, a family living in discord, civil war that begins and erupts. Behold how pleasant and how good when brothers dwell together in unity. (laughs) Yeah, compared to, to my life, compared to fleeing Jerusalem, compared to Shimei throwing down and hurling down curses upon me and clods of dirt as I make my way out of Jerusalem. Behold, how pleasant and how good when brothers dwell together in unity. It's out of his own struggles then that that this psalm comes as a song of ascent of David. But it's not only written by David with the other aspect of it is, how is Psalm 133 then used by God's people? They use it as that pilgrimage song. So as the people, as they experience this, what they're experiencing is they're walking into the temple. Remember last Lord's Day, we we were at the close of the day. The, The temple doors are being shut and the people have to leave. And yet there's the worship of God that is continuing by his servants morning and night. But here the picture is just before that. See, they've entered Jerusalem now. This is earlier in the day. They've entered into Jerusalem. They've entered into the temple courts. And what do they see? What is before them? Well, it's not only the temple, but it's, it's the high priest. It's the Levites. And what do they see? They're all working in this, this awesome, coordinated experience. Because you've got to remember, all these people who are coming, what are they doing? They're all bringing their sacrifices. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands. Some estimate hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. We're coming into Jerusalem on these feast days, each bringing their offering. What a coordinated effort must have been going on within those temple courtyards on behalf of the Levites, on behalf of the priests, to make sure that all of these offerings are taken care of, all of these offerings are dealt with, and and what the pilgrim sees, what they experience as they walk into the temple, is this amazing coordinated effort taking place 
Behold how pleasant and how good when brothers dwell together in unity. But it's not only looking upon that scene, it's also being in that crowd and going, we're all here for the same purpose. We're all here for the same reason. We're all here for Passover or we're all here for the Feast of Pentecost. We're all here to worship the Lord our God. What an amazing thing. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people gathered for one specific purpose. Behold how pleasant and how good when brothers dwell together in unity. See, it's, it's what they're seeing. It's the visualization of, of that aspect. This isn't just some guy sitting, you know, alone and just thinking, behold it. He's, they're seeing it on display. Unity displayed before their very eyes. And what a blessing that must have been. For they, like us, live in a real world, don't they? A real world that is filled with bitterness. A real world that is filled with anger and rage, and hatred. That's, that's life up in Naphtali, isn't it? That's, that's life in Issachar. That's life over across the river in Reuben. The day-to-day experiences of God's people where there is disruption, where there is disharmony, where there is anything but peace. Our lives... Our lives on any given day, our struggle with our own sin, our struggle with sin in this world, our struggles with other people, our struggles within our families, our struggles within our workplace, our struggle with our work, the struggle with being a Christian in a non-Christian world. The struggle with trying to maintain some sense of morality in an immoral world. The struggle with, with trying to maintain some sense of decency in an indecent world. The struggle with trying to maintain some sort of semblance of respect in a world that no longer respects anyone or anything. Behold how pleasant and how good when brothers dwell together. Unity. See, that's one of the reasons we need the Lord's Day. We need each other. We need to see one another because this is the place Where that unity is to be expressed. More about that later. Secondly then, second major point is this is a psalm about unity. I want you to note the two descriptors. Verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now let me just say... The word brothers here does not mean family, okay? Although that certainly is true and would be true, okay? And and we certainly pray for that, that brothers 
would dwell together in unity. So dads, if you've been, you know, elbowing, you know, your son and looking at him say, see, that means you've got to get along with your little brother. Okay? Well, yes, that is there, but that's not really what the psalm is about. Brothers here refers to believer. Brothers here refers to those who are of the same belief. Okay? So here in the Old Testament, it's, it's those who are united together under the bond of Yahweh, under that covenant. For us, it's we who are united to Yahweh, the covenant God, through our brother, Jesus Christ. Now, actually, in the Old Testament, it was the same. They're also united together in Christ, but there it's, 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 it's only in that symbolic, figurative, because they only had the, 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 the images that God gave to them to use, the sacrifices. We have that final reality. So that's the brothers. But notice the two descriptors. It is good and it is pleasant. Good is a term that is used in Scripture to describe something morally. It's the idea of, of that which is right, that which is correct, that which is just, that which is desired by God. It's, it's the use of the word as one would find it in Genesis chapter 1. God created the light and there was evening and there was morning the first day and God saw that it was good. Second day, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. What does that mean? It means it was as God intended it to be. It was correct. It was right. So when the psalmist here says, when David says, behold how good it is when brothers, believers, dwell together in unity, what he's, he's making a moral statement. This is something that is pleasing to God. This is something that is according to God's will. We could say then, back up from that, what David is really saying is this is something that God commands. It is a good thing when we do that which God commands. When we do that which is right, when we do that which is just, when we do that which is desired by God, God is pleased. Unity amongst believers is one of those things that pleases God. Disunity within the body of Christ displeases God. So, one, there's a moral statement. But notice the second descriptor. Behold how good and pleasant. Pleasant describes the physical. Pleasant, says, is the word that we would say describes that which is quiet, that which is calm. Perhaps we'd use the word peaceful. It's living life in a sense of calm, in a sense of quiet, that one's soul is not disruptive. Let me, let me describe it this way. Probably most of us have family events 
I won't say which side of the family, but there are probably family events that we go, I don't really want to go. Don't really want to go because this is just going to, it's just, it's just always chaos in my stomach is, I, I'm upset about having to go to five days before it. I'm worried about who's going to say what. And there's so many delicate, you know, egos out there and you got to kind of walk between all those egos. I don't want to go. It's not a pleasant experience. Like walking on eggshells and not trying to crack any one of them. Others of them, we go, yeah, we'll go as soon as we get the invitation. Man, we're coming. You bet. We want to be there. That's an event we want to go to. Why? Because we, it's always a sense of peace and calm. Everybody gets along well with one another. Nobody gets ruffled feathers over one bad look. Or nobody gets upset because you took green bean casserole in the same dish. They took green bean casserole and they have a hissy fit over it going, Oh, why did you do that? It's just peace and calm. Somebody will say, hey, two green bean casseroles, great, I love it. Nobody gets upset, right? Pleasant. See, it's not only that which is morally right to dwell in unity. Practically speaking, when we dwell in unity, there is peace, there is calm, there's joy, there's happiness. We experience good things. Notice now, David and the pilgrim. Behold how pleasant and how good it is. Not only as we come in to this temple to worship, not only is this doing that which God desires, there is a sense of unity that gives my heart a sense of peace and calm. A sense of joy, happiness that overcomes my life. That's the description of unity. The psalmist, David, then goes on to give us two pictures of it. Right? Two illustrations. The one illustration, verse 2, is the picture of the oil running down. Now just, just let me read verse 2 again. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Running down. What's going on here? Okay. Aaron here stands for the high priest. As the pilgrim comes in, one of the individuals who is there is the high priest. And he's wearing clothing that has stains on it. Stains of oil. Because that high priest has been anointed. He stands as God's representative in this world. That anointing, that anointing comes by God's directives. God, does, God, God doesn't say, hey, just pick who you want to be high priest. God says, no, I pick the high priest. In fact, God not only picks the high priest, God picks the clothing of the high priest. God not only picks the person, he not only picks the clothes, he picks the oil. Because you go back into Exodus chapter 30, 
And for five, six verses there, God goes into great detail describing the oil that is being talked about here, an oil that is to be made of only one particular formula, and it's not to be used for anything else under penalty of being kicked out of the nation. See, God's in control of it running down. See, here's the picture. The picture is as this pilgrim looks upon the high priest and he sees the stains of the oil that has run down off from his head, down his beard, onto those beautiful clothes. He's reminded of the fact that that oil came from God. That high priest came from God. This man serving as the mediator came from God. And the reason that I can have fellowship with God, the reason I can be in unity with God, is because of that man. A picture for us of Jesus Christ. Correct? Our heavenly high priest. He's there as God's representative. He's there as the one who who can accept the sacrifice and give the blessing. See, it's like the dew. It's like the the oil running down. Unity, true unity, comes from God. When we do that which God desires, when we do that which God commands, we are then in fellowship with God. Else unity is not really possible. See, the the misnomer in our world, and, and you know this, but let's just say it. Misnomer is we have this thing in New York called the United Nations. They're never going to be united. Because they have no Christ. Only Christ can unite. It's the only way possible. See, and and the person, David here and the pilgrim, is experiencing that, is understanding that. This is the beauty of it. The blessing of unity comes directly from God. Second illustration. It is like the dew. See, it is. What is? The unity. The unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And we're going, what's going on? Mount Hermon is the tallest of the mountains in all of Israel, in the land traditionally we refer to as Israel or Canaan. Hermon is the tallest. And of course it would be natural that dew falls there. The second mountains or mountain that is mentioned is zion and although we make a big deal of it zion mount zion particularly probably for those of you who have been there is no big deal we'd probably call it a nice hill okay maybe a big hill but we certainly wouldn't call it a mountain herman we'd call a mountain zion maybe a hill upon the great and upon the small Upon the strong and upon the weak, upon all, God's blessing falls. 
See, because here's the picture, right? You're walking through the temple gates into the temple court. And who are you walking with? Well, they don't go, okay, those of you with incomes over 200,000, you line up first, you get enter first. Those of you with incomes between 100,000 and 200,000, you get to walk in next. Those of you 100,000 to 50, you go third. It's not like, oh, yeah, I'm just stuck with the same people in my income bracket. You're rubbing shoulders. You're crowding into that gate with somebody with exquisite, expensive clothing and on your other shoulder is the beggar it's like the dew that falls upon Hermon and then descends to Zion all are included in this blessing none are left out doesn't matter if you're the greatest mountain or the smallest hill of Israel you experience the blessing oh and what does do do? 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 <laughs> yeah, that was the right way. I didn't think of that. It falls. That's what it tells us, right? Verse 3. Which falls. Which falls. Meaning, once again, what? It comes from above. God's blessing falls upon all. Isn't that an amazing thing? Let me stop to think about it. That's probably what Paul meant in Galatians when he said, you see, in Christ there is no more slave or free. In Christ there is no more male or female. In Christ there is no more Jew or Gentile. Because you see, amongst believers, there is this unity that comes. Let me just clarify. God doesn't take Mount Hermon and bring it down to the size of Mount Zion, nor does he take Zion and suddenly add a dirt to it so it becomes Mount Hermon. It's not equality in the sense that our world thinks about that equality. But it's an equality of grace. It took the same grace to save each one of us. There is no distinction. The dew that falls, the grace that comes, falls upon all of us equally. No matter who we are. Rich, poor, educated, uneducated, male, female, young, old. Tie wearer. Work boot wearer. Doesn't matter. See, that's the picture. This experience. Oh, I see the high priest. This is from God, this unity. And look at us. Look at us. We're all drawn together in that unity. As believers, as brothers in Christ, behold how good and pleasant that is. Scripture provides us another picture of that unity. Turn with me to John chapter 17. John 17. Particularly, find verse 20, if you would.
that picture of unity is what we're reading in Jesus' high priest prayer in John 17. Pick it up at verse 20. Jesus is praying. I do not ask for these only, that was the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. The prayer of Jesus Christ would be that the unity that we have as believers would be the same as the unity that is found between himself and the Father. If you think about it, if you, if you stop and ask the question, how great is that unity? You'd say you can't, you can't cut it. You can't separate it. So should be our unity. Now, watch what happens. Go with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. The disciples, Acts chapter 1, 14, the disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Acts 1, 14. All these were, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. All these with one accord. Who was that? Well, that happens to be Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. A bunch of guys who couldn't have got their act together had they tried. All in one accord. Jesus prayed, Lord, draw my disciples together as one. He did it. It occurred. Acts 1.14, go to Acts chapter 2. What about those, though, who believe? That's who the prayer was for, right? Those who believe. Acts chapter 2.41, not part of Acts 1.14. Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Boy, now there's a job for church unity, right? No, read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. An amazing thing occurs. You have a church of 3,000 souls, and it is unified. It is unified in its fellowship, It is unified in its prayer life, it is unified in its worship, and it is unified in teaching. How you doing? How you doing as far as the unity of the church is concerned? No, not the church, the church. There's only one church here, and that's the church that you're a member of. How you doing? Can you name 
Here's a quiz. Can you name the last two people who made profession of faith here? You know why? Because they made it at night. How many of you know that? And yet we as the congregation are obligated to set an example of faithfulness and worship to those young people. How are you doing? How many Bible studies of little farms do you attend? Devoted to the apostles' teaching. See, there was just one church here. That's the picture. One church in one community. 3,000 people, and they're united together. Well, you know, there's a lot of other important things to do. There's like mission work to do. Let me show you what happens. You want mission work? And all who believed were together, had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Mission work? And the Lord added daily to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You see, when the church is what the church is to be, missions is taken care of. It happens. You may not be called to go to Uganda. You may not be called to go to India. You may not be called to go to North Korea. But what I do know is this. You are called to be a member of Little Farms Chapel and to practice unity. And by that unity, the Lord will add day by day to those who are being saved. Why? Behold. Behold. You know what that word's reserved for? That word is reserved when God has something awesome to say and awesome to announce. Well, here is the awesome announcement. It is a morally good thing and it is a practically pleasant thing when brothers dwell together in unity. Why? Because that's where my blessing is. My blessing rests on the unity My blessing rests on the unity. What is the blessing? The church added those who were being saved. How'd how'd that go? Well, the next time we read of a number, guess how many they have? 5,000. 5,000. We have a church that grew from 120 to over 5,000. In a matter of months. Why? Because the Lord's blessing rested upon that church. What is that blessing of unity? Life. Life. There is a vitality. See, there is a strength, a strength of life, a strength of abundance, a strength of peace that people go, I want a part of that. 
got? What do you have there? What do you have there, Jerusalem church, that, that I don't have in my Jewish religion? What do you have? We have unity. Unity in Christ. They're drawn. They're drawn. How many churches do you know that go through a time of utter chaos and turmoil within the church and end up growing? Go, well, if they do, it isn't for a long, long time because everybody stays away from them. Hmm. If everybody stays away from the church that's in disunity, what happens to the church in unity? They're drawn. God's Word tells us that. We're drawn. The greatest mission work that the church can do is unity. It's God's approved method. Life. Vitality. Forevermore. Because you see, when God gives us glimpses of glory, what is it? It's a picture of unity. It's a picture of people from all tribes and all nations and all races. And what are they doing? They're singing one song of worship to the Lord. Hallelujah. The Lord, our God, reigns. That's the blessing of unity. Let's pray. Father, thank you. The picture, the vision of David, the prophetic work of David in this. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Thank you for for inspiring him. Thank you that your Holy Spirit breathed out these words into David so that this morning we might hear you breathe them out to us. That we might hear you speak to our own heart, to our own life, to our own situation, to our own hearts. But also, Father, that you give to us this beautiful picture of the body of Christ, united, drawing others to Him. Father, may someone say of us someday, behold, how pleasant and how good it is to be with the people of Little Farms. For the glory for the honor of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, God's people say, Amen.